Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Well, good morning, church. My name is Elijah Daly. I get to be one of the ministers here on staff, and we're glad that you're here, that we're looking more and more into the series that we started a couple weeks ago called Salvation Spaces. And if you remember, part of what our goal is with this series is to recognize that salvation actually demonstrates itself in really beautiful forms. We're trying to use illustrations of spaces to illustrate what happened in the person and work of Jesus, right? So the first week we talked about the gospel as a whole, the fact that like God is on a throne. We use that image of a throne, a throne room where God sits and his will is made known and his commands are expressed and, and it never returns void. Things happen. And God's will in this instance from this throne was that he was going to heal the world and the relationships that had been devastated and broken. This was his will, to do these things for his glory in, in the most radical, amazing thing. The way he chose to do this was by stepping off of that throne himself. It was by walking with us. The person and work of Jesus demonstrates to us not only the will of God, but how he would accomplish it himself. Last week, we talked about propitiation, right? That giant word that most of us probably had never heard before. And we use the space of an altar. And that's really the important part of it. We don't really use altars in our day and age right now, right? That's not something we, we do very often, make sacrifices on an altar. But we're all kind of familiar with, with what that image is supposed to communicate. That there's something by which we're, we're putting to death on top of it as a sacrifice, as an offering. And the whole point of what really the gospel is trying to communicate is that there was an offering, a sacrifice needed and Jesus himself became that sacrifice. He himself put himself onto the altar in order that it may pacify the wrath of God. It would move the wrath of God from his people onto himself that he could bear that in our place. It's the altar, that's propitiation. It's something incredible that Jesus was in his person and in his work. And this week, we're talking about justification. Justification. And this week, we're using a space, the image of a courtroom. And there's really a lot of reasons for this, and the primary one, really, is that justification is a legal term. It has to do with a judge, and he comes in and he's determining whether somebody is justified or not, right? Whether they are guilty or they are innocent, whether they are in the right or they are in the wrong. Justification as a whole is about judging, which can make us a little bit nervous because you know what they say about Christians, you know what I mean? They tend to be a little judgy. They're kind of the judgy type. But actually, I think like everyone really judges, you know what I mean? Like we all judge. We all evaluate things, measure them. In fact, to even say Christians are the judgy type is actually to judge Christians as judgy. We all judge. Everybody does. Sometimes it's harmless. Sometimes it's not. But today, what I want to do to start us off is to play a little game where you're going to help me judge some pictures. Sound good? Now, this is an easy game, okay? Don't overthink it. Here's what I want to do. I'm going to show you two pictures, and I want you to help me judge them. Now, remember, when you judge something, you're judging them by a standard that exists outside of them. And so our standard is kind of like, you know, uh, wrong, right, good or better, better or best. You know what I mean? That's kind of the standard. Now, what's the idea that we're trying to judge them by? Which one you would rather enjoy, okay? Or which one embodies the best part of that thing? You know what I mean? You will in a moment, okay? So, the first question I have for you is this. 
which place or which thing would you rather eat? The one on the left or the one on the right? So if you're the one on the left, raise your hand if it's the one on the left. Very good, very good. Raise your hand if it's the one on your right. Obviously, that looks delicious, okay? Now, the next question is, which one of these things would you rather experience a vacation at, all right? Is it the one on the left? Raise your hand if it's the one on the left. Very good. Raise your hand if it's the one on the right. Okay, some of you guys aren't raising your hand. This is the easiest thing I'm going to ask you to do today, okay? The next one I'm going to ask you to do is judge which one manifests, embodies the best fan, okay? The fandom. Is it the one on the left? You're liars. You're dirty liars. Is it the one on the right? Yes, very good. See, here's the thing. I'm a Broncos fan. And our season really hasn't started off very well like it was supposed to. So I've got to take every opportunity I can. Okay, I know that the Chiefs are better. Now, however, the next one that I'm going to show you, it's a little bit trickier. Okay, I want you to tell me who embodies the better fandom in this picture. Okay. Huh? If you know, you know. Everyone else is like, I don't get it, okay? It's okay. If you know, you know, all right? Here's the deal. We judge. We evaluate. In fact, a couple weeks ago, my son, I took my six-year-old son after practice. We were walking from his football practice back to the car, and I was telling him, you know, we're going to be going on a family vacation, and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun, but you're going to miss some school. In fact, you're going to miss Grandparents' Day. And he's like, oh, man. I really wanted to be at Grandparents' Day. I was like, oh, really? Why? He's like, well, we learned this song. I really wanted to sing this song to my grandparents on Grandparents' Day. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. Well, let's hear it. Like, sing it. Let me hear it. And he's like, you know, he got this big grin on his face. He's like, I'm not going to sing it. People will hear me. And I was like, wow, that is so interesting that this six-year-old kid is already experiencing the weight of being evaluated by other people, being judged by them that he might not be in the right if he were to vocalize these things. But then get this, three days later, we're on this vacation. We're going to Texas, okay? We're in Oklahoma and my four-year-old son says, dad, I gotta go to the bathroom. And it was at that one of those moments where there was a gas station right there, which you know, it never happens like that. You know what I mean? It's like, yes, well, there's a gas station right there. We're going to stop right there. And he's like, no, dad, I'm, I got to go. And he's, um, 30 seconds later, it was like, he's going. And it didn't even matter that the gas station was there. And you know how it is. Once we get there, this is like an event now, you know? So like I'm getting him out. I'm getting a change of clothes. We're kind of getting things situated. I'm walking him toward the gas station door to walk inside. And you know what he says to me? Dad, people are going to see me. People are going to see that I peed. Four years old, and he already knows that he is in the sights of other people's judgment. Doesn't get easier, does it? It's hard. It gets tougher as time goes on. Because we are judged, and we judge others. And we walk around as performers being evaluated and hopefully noticed and affirmed when we do the right thing. Hoping to go undetected when we fail. We all seek a sort of justification in some area of our lives and we will adapt and change depending on what that is. And that is why we're talking about justification. If I could bring this heavy theological topic right into our everyday moment, Paul is trying to say, we all try to justify ourselves by something and I, I, I know the secret of the most fundamental, the best justification you could ever receive and I know how you can get it. And that's what we're looking at today. 
And so we're going to ask three questions. One, what is justification? Two, why do we need it? And three, how do we get it? Okay? What is it? Why do we need it? How do we get it? So what is justification? If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans 4, verse 18. We're going to be looking at when Paul introduces the life of Abraham into the story here in Romans 4. We're going to be looking at some of the things he's talking about and understanding why it is he introduces Abraham and the story of Abraham, the illustration into his argument. Okay, so Romans 4, 18, listen to what it says. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him. So shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. So what is justification? Well, you can kind of see it in verse 22. It says it was credited to him as righteousness. That, that's what justification really is. Now, what's kind of hard, what you kind of miss is that justification or justice, a, a sense of, of being just and righteousness or righteous or right, Those are actually the exact same word in Greek. There's no distinction there. We make the distinction in English. We have two different words for that concept, but they're using the exact same word. And it's the sense of rightness, right? Like that's when we looked at those pictures of food or nature or fandom, there was a rightness to one and not the other, or maybe just more of a rightness to one than the other. That's what our judgments are based off of. We see the world in regards to whether something is right or in the wrong, based off of our understanding and even based off of our standard by which what is good or, or evil or right or wrong. And that's why this image, this space of a courtroom is so helpful to understanding this. A judge determines whether someone on trial is in the right or not. And that is what my sons felt. Each one of them felt this, this sense that they might not be in the right in terms of the opinions of the people around them, that they might look wrong in terms of their social environments and the expectations that are, that are placed on them. So here's your definition. What is justification? Really simply, it's being in the right. To justify something means I'm saying it's right, the verdict is good. Justification is the idea of the right. Does that make sense? Come on, guys. Talk to me so I can brag about how much you talk to me and not Mark. Does that make sense? There you go, that's good. So, how, so why do we need it? Why do we need it? How, like, why do we need this sort of justification in our life? Look what it says in four, uh, Romans 4, 18. Let's look back at our text. It says this. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. So here's what we see. I'm going to unpack this text a little bit. So track with me. The first thing Abraham says is he believes God against all hope. You know what that means? It means he had no hope. He should not have had hope. Why? Well, it tells us. If we read the story of Abraham, even in Genesis, we see that this dude was old. Like not just a little old, not kind of old. This dude was seriously old. In fact, what the text says in particular was that his body was as good as dead. Okay, so turn to your neighbor and say, you look like your body's as good as dead. No, I'm just joking. 
because it's insulting, right? This is a serious thing. This dude was almost 100 years old, which, by the way, was just as exceptional and spectacular in his age as it is in ours. People don't live that long very often. It's pretty stunning. So why should Aram had not have hope? Why should, why should he not have had hope in this instance? Was it because he was so old that he was going to be dying soon? Yes, that's a major part. But I want to point out another part to you. The promise that God made to him really exposes some of these things of why he should not have had hope. And we see it in Genesis 15, 3. So listen to what it says. Abram said, speaking to God, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So do you see why the odds are stacked against Abraham in having hope? It's not just because he himself is close to death, although it is. It's also because his family line is close to death. He has no heir, he has no child, and his wife Sarah, who by the way is also very old, is barren. And what it says is not only is Abraham, is his body as good as dead, but it says so was Sarah's womb. They themselves, you know, they, they actually felt these external pressures in these time periods of having kids, of producing. And for a hundred years, almost a hundred years, Sarah could not have a child. She was barren. They felt these expectations that weighed on them, these, these social pressures. And Sarah carried this burden of being looked upon as less than for so long because she could not produce a child. Now, if you're like me, you're reading this text and you're like, what does this have to do with justification? It's kind of, it's kind of strange. Because when we think of judgment or anything in those regards, we think of like morality, you know? And so why this is being brought up now, it's a little strange. But Paul says, Abraham trusted God after God promises this son to Abraham. And in verse 22, it says, this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, because Abraham believed God when he said he was going to do something, God justified him. He told him he was in the right. I want to take a step back and I want you to see that there's two forms of justification that we're actually seeing happening in this text. The first is socially, okay? Abraham and Sarah are being judged by their social environment as less than because they are not living up to the standards set by the community. They have no kid, they have no heir, and they are on death's door. And what I want you to know is that these are the exact same sorts of social pressures that we feel. When we look in the mirror, when we look on social media, perhaps when you walked into church today, Sometimes we can even apply them to our kids. Our kids can become trophies of our achievement. But you know what? They can also become places of insecurity when they fail. Because they will. Because you have, and I have, and they will. And you know what exposes these shortcomings the most? Is suffering. Difficult times. Hard moments. That's when our shortcomings, our insecurities become glaring and blaring, uh, they blare their loudness to our lives. In fact, uh, have you guys ever heard of Julia Childs? 
Mark, Mark uh, Christian told me that there was this really great documentary and he was talking about this sweet moment that happens in this documentary. And so I went and watched it. Uh, not by myself, okay? Uh, I went and watched it, uh, but it was, a great, it was a great documentary. It was about her life. And so if you don't know who she was, she was a famous you know, uh, cook. She had all these recipes. She had a great TV personality. And she really grew in her popularity over time. But what happened as, the, as her popularity grew is she developed breast cancer. And when the news came, she and her husband, Paul, were just devastated. Obviously, they just didn't know what would become of it. They had fear. They were scared. And in this documentary, it talks about how she's writing in her journal this moment where she she walked into her bathroom and she looked into the mirror and she saw the scars on her chest because she had to have a mastectomy. And she just starts to weep. And Paul hears her. And so he goes in and he just embraces her. And she looks at Paul and she says, Paul, how can you ever love me like this? And Paul just can't believe that she would even ask the question. So he he embraces her and he makes a little joke. He says, says, Julie, I didn't marry you for your breasts. I married you for your legs. (laughs) And she said, in that moment, that little joke That embrace, she never had to question it again. But what I want you to notice was that experience of the things she was wrestling with, what she thought, that she, there was this expectation on her life that she had to live up to, that she would be judged by. She felt like she was in the wrong. She wasn't in the right anymore. Have you ever felt that experience? Because that's what Abraham and Sarah, they're starting to feel when they have no child, and Paul is very clear about it, things didn't look good for them. But there's another justification that I don't want you to miss, because this is the one that God is most concerned about. You see, the major issue with Sarah and Abraham is not that they didn't have kids. It's that they were going to die, that their bodies were as good as dead. Why were they going to die? And Paul kind of explores this. He tells us why through the book of Romans. In Romans 3.23, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then he says in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. You see, our feelings of insecurity, when we have those deep feelings of insecurity within our lives, you know what it's implying? It's our verdict on our own lives that we are not quite right with the world. But here's what Paul is trying to teach us through justification, through these ideas. That every single person in their worst moments, perhaps when they are alone, perhaps when they are not, will all have this experience of guilt or shame for something we have done. And it is God's megaphone to help clarify the fact that we are not right with him that we actually do agree on the standard of goodness and we just have failed to live up to it. And that's why we too, we have bodies of, of death that are as good as dead. This is why Paul says in Romans 7, 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Do you see why we need justification? We all have an end in sight that we are not really proud of, that we don't really want to have, but we recognize at some level, if you've ever felt guilt or shame, that we deserve. It's every part of what this is implying, those insecurities, the shame, the guilt. And Abraham and Sarah, they were examples of this fact. They were dead socially, they were about to be dead physically, and they had been condemned by their society, and they were 
condemned by God. It's harsh. But listen to what Romans 4, 19 says. It says, without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead, Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. And I, I, I need to make sure you hear this. Because God is telling Abraham, I'm going to bring life from your bodies. I'm going to bring life back into that womb and from it. It's not too dead for me. And that is the hope that he continues to offer every person that has ever experienced those moments of guilt or shame. You see, by grace, God not only says, I'm going to justify you by your community standards, by those social pressures, but because you just believe I'm going to, because you trust that I will do what I have said, I'm going to justify you by mine. He puts him in the right. And what that means is death will not have the final word. Not only will he bring life back into or from their bodies, he will bring life back into them. Do you see why we need this? Why we need this sort of justification far above any other? So how do we get it? How do we get it? How do we get freedom from those moments of guilt or shame? How do we get freedom from our sin to live a life that, of, of relief, of rest, and in the presence of our God? Well, I can tell you there's two general things we end up defaulting to. We react. There's two ways we end up reacting when it comes to our justification. Like if you've ever tried to justify yourself ever, you will tend to react in these two ways. Either one, you will try harder. You will do more. Or you will give up completely. (laughs) And you know what I mean. Like if you've ever felt yourself like not really living up to the standards, you will change yourself. You'll change your body. You'll add things to it. You'll take things away. You'll say yes to everything because you don't want to let them down. You'll work constantly. You'll achieve, try to achieve more and more, get another degree, get another accolade that it can allow yourself to be seen in the right. On the other hand, though, if you don't feel like you can do those things, if you feel like your efforts really don't lead to any production or achievement in your life, you'll just give up. Stop caring. Stop changing. Because you don't think you can tried it's too hard so what do we do how do we get a righteousness a justification that makes us right with God because you see what happens is we either become the religious or the irreligious the religious says you just have to keep trying you have to keep using your effort to get there and when the religious do this that is what makes them think they can boast over others because if they have any sense any taste of success they think well you could do it too and because you didn't I'm better On the irreligious side, though, we just give up. You just give up. You're not even going to try. And so you let yourself succumb to the things that hurt and destroy you. So how do we get it? How do we get it? Look at what Romans 3.19 says. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. You see, at one level, he's saying, you can't earn it. There's nothing you can do. That feeling, that initial reaction you get when you mess up of, okay, I'll just do a little bit better next time. I'll I'll be a little bit nicer. I'll give a little bit more. I'll sacrifice just as much as I can. It's not enough. But then at at the other end, he's saying, but if you do nothing, you're still in the same position. 
You're still in need of something to justify you. You're still in need of something that you do not possess. So how do we get it? Now, what's worse about this is Paul says the law actually comes in and it exposes us even more. We thought if we obeyed the law more, it would make us right with God, that he would care about us a little more, that he would like us, he would give us the things that we want or need or anything like that. And he's saying, no, actually, when the law comes in, it exposes who you are because it is so beautiful. It is so good. It tells you what the truth is, that when it comes up next to you, it reveals how how untruthful you are, how distorted you have truly become. And so instead of the law becoming a path to righteousness, it is a magnifying glass of where we are. It exposes us. So do you see what he's saying? Sometimes we just, we want to do good things and we just don't do them. Sometimes we want to do bad things and we we just do it. And we're stuck in this hard place. Like this is the human condition. Like I'm there too. I was at my primary care doctor. I was establishing a new primary doctor. You know what I mean? And you know what you got to do when that happens. You got to go get some blood work and they kind of evaluate some, where some of those general things are at. And my blood work came back and you know what it said? My doctor was like, listen, it says your cholesterol's high, you know? So you either need to eat better or start exercising. And so I was like, okay, but you know what? I still don't want to eat better or, and I still want to do nothing, you know? Like the struggle is real. It's difficult. Like sometimes we know what we need to do. We just don't do it. And sometimes we know we should not do and we still do it. This is the human condition. Because even, even the things, even the threat of death it doesn't keep us from the things of death. And that is why we need something else. We need something else to come in and change our hearts. And the challenge we face is that it's so debilitating when we feel like we can't change that we're like, what do we do? I don't know. We become obsessed with this, these feelings and sometimes they can lead to despair. Sometimes we just keep trying. Sometimes we just ignore them. But they are always revealed by our suffering when our conditions become difficult. I mean, really, truthfully, when our circumstances are bad, it's like, man, what, what am I? Where am I? What am I? Where am I going? Where is God in the midst of this? And here's the most challenging part about it is that those feelings, they can actually start to make you question whether what's happening to you is because God's mad at you. You can start to question whether like God is penalizing you. Like, I, I mean, this is what Sarah probably thought in this moment, whether... I mean, she couldn't have a child. Like, is God mad at me? That's what her society probably would have been telling her at that point. Like, if you didn't have what you needed, it's because God was mad at you or he kept it from you. He's penalizing you. He showed his wrath from what he withheld. And in this strange way, even the things in this life that we become insecure about comes back to God. Like, God, why didn't you make it this way? Why didn't you give me this thing? How can I justify myself before you so so you can give me what I need or what I want? And Paul's trying to tell us, you can't. The law was the only way you could do it, and we botched it. The whole world is silenced. So how do we get it? How do we get this law? To to no longer judge us in such a cruel way. Partly why Paul is telling the story of Abraham. Because Abraham was justified before God, right? But there was no law. The law didn't come until 400 years after the fact when Moses, when it was given to Moses. Somehow Abraham had been justified apart from the law and now we have to ask, how? How did he get it? Romans 4, 23 says, the words it was credited to him were written not for him alone but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. 
He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So do you hear what he's saying? He's saying the answer, which I know we all expected of how we get justification is we simply believe in Jesus. We trust him. We trust God's promise. We have faith in everything that God has said he will apply to us in Christ. You have to believe that the thing that makes you right in this world is not you at all. It is God and God alone. But how? How does that justify us? Because when Jesus was king, when he was on his throne, he came off of it. He walked alongside us. He lived a perfect life. Like this guy was perfect. He was the right person. He had no body of death, but it was his life upon the altar. It was his life upon the cross, and it was his body in the tomb. But how do we know that we believe? How do we know? How can we be sure that our belief is truly bringing justification to us? Well, one of the surest signs you can tell is by looking at the life of Abraham, what did he do? The very thing that he longed for to justify his appearance to the world, he put on the altar for God. Are you willing to do that? You see, you will know for sure that your belief in God soars above every other aspect that we long to be justified in when we allow it to be put on the altar. Will you? Because when you do, you can have a justification that brings hope into your life that is against all hope. A justification before God because Jesus is the one who took our guilty status, he took our criminality, he paid the price as lawbreaker, and we are judged by God, not by our righteousness. It's filthy rags. We're judged by his. And this is how God is both just and justifier. God can bring life from our bodies because we aren't too dead for him. He longs for it. You must simply believe the promise just as Abraham did. What was the promise? It says in 425, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Listen, this whole world is passing away, but this is the justification that we need This is the only one we need. And when we receive it, not when we earn it, when we receive it, when we allow God to do these things, it will become the only justification you will ever want or you will ever need. Because as this world passes away, God never will. We can always feel at home in his presence and it is eternal, even when we don't feel at home in this world. Justification, it will start to rip down every every temptation that the world tries to apply to us. What do I mean by that? I mean, the mirror will lose its grip on you. Social media will lose its grip on you. Society will lose its grip on you. Sin and death will lose their grip on you. That's what, that's what we're being invited to. But it does something even more than this that I don't want you to miss. You see, justification in Christ also means that in our worst moments, when we are struggling more than we ever have before, we will never have to question if God is mad at us, if he is penalizing us, because there is a king who has taken that punishment upon himself that will never have to be delivered out again. 
And now suffering is no longer punishment. It is transformation for our glory. It is God using it in ways that will expound and grow into beauty. And, and we see this through the life of Jesus. Like because Jesus suffered and died to bring resurrection and glory, that's exactly what he's going to do through our own suffering. And this is why Paul transitions into Romans 5 and he says this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, when you have this sort of justification, it will be the only justification you will ever want or you will ever need. Abraham believed against all hope that God was going to bring life from his body, and he did. And that life would lead to a savior, and that savior would produce life for every single person who trusts him. Will you? Will you make him everything? Will you believe that he is worth all of your life? Because in this justification, he brings energy to those who have given up and relief to those who feel like they can't stop trying. He allows our hope to soar past insecurity. He allows suffering to break into glory. He allows death to simply be a means to resurrection. This is what justification is. Imagine you are before a judge. He is robed with honor and authority. All rise as he walks from his chamber to the bench. He sits and before him is a gavel, that instrument of order which silences a room. There is no jury here. Only one is righteous enough to determine those who have broken the law and the sentence they receive. He is separated by a desk and the file full of charges. The arraignment begins. You sit as defendant and listen as the judge reads the charges. There is no mistake, no omission. From the greatest trespass to the least, you are guilty. The evidence is too clear, the witnesses too loud. The judge shuts the file and delivers his verdict. Guilty. The bailiff comes to chain and usher, but it is not for you, it is another. Who is this man? Why should he bear my crime, my guilt, my blame? Why is he led away to bear my sentence, my punishment, my shame? He is the Holy One, the Word made flesh, his perfection charged to me. So he could take my trespasses and bear my penalty. His righteousness exchanged for the deeds that I have done. He wears my prison clothes and chains so I could know his love. Here I stand, I'm free. Not because of what I've done, but because I've seen and tasted of the Savior and his love. Justice is served, and love is shared, both held within our God. He offers hope and takes despair. 
He is the just and justifier. Justification is ours in Christ. And now we are the righteous. Not because our deeds were good, but because God credited his righteousness. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christ Church, visit us online at cco.church.